And before I begin the program, a reminder that it's just two months to the annual Radiothon, the time of year when our listeners and supporters show that it's vital to keep alternative radical voices and ideas alive, especially at this time of right-wing and far-right-wing organisations and governments ascending worldwide. So I'll be reminding you each week until early June about the Radiothon. Now on to the program. Just how dangerous is our obsession with China? Question for Richard Tanter, Senior Research Associate the Nautilus Institute and Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. An urgent alert at further attacks on activists in the Philippines, human rights activists here in Australia, but from the Philippines, May Kotsakis, talking with former solicitor Max Costello about a court case regarding Australia's cruelty to refugees. Which legal straw might break the camel's back? The life and work of a man who left his former life as US Attorney General behind him and turned against imperialism and became a great humanitarian. Or speaking of Ramsey Clark, peace activist Brian Terrell will talk about his long life. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when we celebrate May Day by learning Kublai Wasni is being governed by the dear baby Jesus, which, which probably explains a lot. And worse, good government is threatened by the evil one. And speak of the devil, it's reassuring to know our big supremo scuttled them more last son, a.k.a. Scummo, while doing the work of Jesus, believes in the evil one, who's getting pretty old given his origins go back beyond when God, when Jesus made Adam and Eve not equal, of course, and tempted them with an apple tree. Scuttle them announced this big news while laying on hands and talking in tongues, which also probably explains a lot. <laughs> so obviously Jesus has it in for people fleeing persecution, we asked his representative. My policy on concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats was given me in a dream by the dear baby Jesus, Scuttle them explained. The no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people might think it's more the work of the evil one scuttled them. There is no doubt, and the dear baby Jesus has no doubt, well, well, he knows everything, no doubt the anti-Trublawazi goody-goodies who defend these illegal criminals are being influenced by the evil one, indeed are doing the work of the evil one. And it is my job, acting on behalf of the dear baby, to prevent people in boats coming to this country and acting as if they own it. Like um, Arthur Philip and the first boat people. There is no comparison. Those brave souls were doing the work of the dear baby, bringing civilization, Christianity, to such a pagan savages who still can't seem to appreciate the great blessings this act of kindness and Christian charity has brought them. And your religion is guiding your campaign to prevent domestic violence and sexual harassment? Very much so. With the blessing of the dear baby Jesus, we will ban milkshakes. I had a divine revelation that milkshakes are the root of all evil. Can I take this opportunity to warn young women, if a man offers to buy you a milkshake, run. Yes, yes, sensible advice. And how will you be celebrating May Day, Scummo? 
It was a tragedy. It was clearly the work of the evil one that workers are led by those doing the work of the evil one to believe that caring employers, who in turn do the work of the dear baby, are an evil force, that caring employers exploit them without, um, without whom they wouldn't even have a job. They should be giving thanks to the dear baby Jesus and not worshipping at the shrine of the evil one. Uh, thank you, Scummo. Pleasure. Bless you. Well, it's always educating to hear the voice of reason and rationality, isn't it? The magnanimity of the government under the guidance of is obvious as they continue to act in the best interests of those evil workers despite that evil. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs has undergone a 100% conversion on the road to discarding Milton Friedman and embracing John Maynard Keynes, preparing us for a big spending budget with lots of goodies being handed to lots of people, all because his only concern is to get workers into work, but not just into work, but highly paid work. An end to the slow wage growth which has so bewildered the great corporate boardrooms, who, and we're not privy to their discussions, but who must sit around the table, or this past year presumably the computer screen, and repeat over and over and over, can someone please tell us how we can stop slow wages growth and pay workers a decent wage? Well, the week that was has been proffering what we think is a simple, obvious solution to low wages, but obviously we haven't got a clue, and we asked Josh how long his conversion from austerity to profligacy might last, until he looked very pleased with himself after the next election. Thanks to Josh, back in the boardrooms, the concerns over the unemployment rate and slow wage growth may soon be over, allowing them to breathe a sigh of and pop the corks or enjoy a classic cognac or single malt scotch in their favourite armchair at the Melbourne Club. Sadly, a number of them were gasping for a decent cognac or single malt when some maverick suggested one solution to high unemployment was to employ people and one solution to slow wages growth was to pay them more. The week that was as discredited, clueless, simple, obvious solution. The responsible ones couldn't believe such economic heresy, economic ignorance. The wisest of the caring employers, which is all of them, know the solution to their desire to employ more ingrate, lazy, avaricious workers and to pay them more lies with those workers themselves. They are quite simply not productive enough. It's their own bloody fault. This industrial myopia must, must so distress the caring employers, the boardrooms, the bonhomery at the Melbourne Club. Let's hope those thoughtless workers use this May Day to contemplate how they can be more productive to wean themselves off the influence of the evil one. Scuttle then said the Keeping Us Secure Department Secretary Make War Pizzullo's call to arms, beating the drums of war, we must preserve the peace by launching war on that which we cannot name, but let me assure you, listener, it is an atheistic communist enemy ruled by the evil one. Unlike our very, very, very close friend and protector, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, which epitomizes the peace, the love of the dear baby Jesus, although it also loves wanting and demanding a peace of everything else. Anyway, Scuttle them said all that meant he was committed to the cause of peace. Scuttle them, we are Scuttle them. 
If China attempts to reclaim Taiwan, which is, certainly was, part of China before the good, good arch-conservatives we back fled there, and if the US of gets involved to prevent China reclaiming China, what has that to do with Tubluwazi? I am committed to peace, and Tubluwazi has a fine record of bringing peace to countries all over the world, and our very close friend, the US of, is committed to peace as a Christian, Jesus-loving country. So if it goes to war on behalf of the good people of Taiwan, then we must do what God wants. That is, obey the US of's orders. Although, having said that, we are not necessarily talking about... Uh, what country did you say? A China. That's it. We're not necessarily talking about China. Well, that's a relief. Relief, too, for the merchants of death who must have been feeling the cold because they were seen rubbing their hands together. We, too, are committed to peace, they assured us, and we play a major role in providing governments and others with the means they need to maintain that peace. So you'll flog your products to the U.S. on so they can maintain peace all over the U.S. of the world. Certainly, we love peace and you'll sell your peaceful products to the countries in which the U.S. of fights to maintain peace. It is our duty, it is the duty of business not to take sides in these matters. Business must not get involved in politics. We make that clear every time we order government to meet with us. Former Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats and now Minister for Trained Killing and Offence, Constable Peter Duffer, the giant mind behind the War is Peace machine, got stuck into the Western Tubluwazi Socialist Government for using a hotel for quarantine, stating it was not fit for purpose. Uh, then where should they be quarantined, Pete? Like you know, hotels, uh, which are like fit for you know purpose. But you just said a hotel was not fit for purpose. Other than, you know, like, that like hotel. Hotels have, you know, been really successful in, like, caring business class government, you know, like, states. There are pushes for your government to provide safe quarantine sites such as maybe Christmas Island. Christmas Island is not, you know, fit for, like, purpose. But it's fit for purpose for people fleeing persecution, Kublawazi and US of invasions, for instance, or awaiting extradition? Like, yes. So what's the difference? Kublawazis and other international visitors in, like, quarantine are, are like, you know, human beings. Oh, well, that explains that. This ad on telly by one of the ubiquitous salt, sugar and fat junk food lots has consumers getting almost orgasmically excited over deep-fried donuts. It's as if they, they, the junk food lot, so despise anyone mad enough to eat their rubbish, they spend hours attempting to devise the most lethal, increasingly lethal products. If a deep-fried donut could be called a product, footy fans who fall for the ad would be touch-and-go seeing out the game before the coronary disaster. Finally, house ad with Susan Duffy and um, Annie, um, Annie promoting May Day coverage, you'll be pleased to know Annie wins won you the understatement of the year award, that evil workers must continue their evil fight, she said, because we haven't won yet. That's putting it mildly. Hope you had a happy May Day. Good afternoon.
is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterised by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. I spoke recently with Richard Tanter, Senior Research Associate at the Nautilus Institute and Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne, for his impressions, indeed concerns, at the beating of war drums against China. And I asked him first if he could trace the beginnings of this obsession by the Australian Government and the US Government with China which many believe is entering a possibly dangerous place. Well, indeed, we are in a very dangerous time, I think. We have um, survived the Trump time, which was just simply because in international relations between nuclear-armed countries, uncertainty in itself is really dangerous. But we're in a new phase now. But it's very clear that what is happening at the moment between Australia and China, the United States and China, really goes back to the 1990s when the Clinton administration really couldn't make up its minds how to relate to this new power coming onto the scene, then just showing a little bit of, if you like, above the horizon, and but they were clear it was going to be coming down the tracks at them. For the Clinton administration, they couldn't decide whether China, as a newly emerging, very definitely capitalist power, 
was going to be a strategic partner or a strategic competitor. And it's now very clear the Americans have decided it's not on balance a partner. It's going to be a competitor, if not an adversary and indeed an enemy. The Australian government, remembering that China in, if let's call it the Australian imaginary, you know, the kind of unconscious thoughts that Australians have had for almost two centuries of European colonisation, China has been the biggest, baddest bogeyman of them all there. And so, you know, once you touch the China button in Australian political culture, it can move very quickly. And that's, of course, what many uh, Australians of Chinese descent are beginning to feel at the moment. I think the Australian government has decided to be more American than the Americans in its running on China, uncalled for by the Americans, I suspect. The Morrison government took the initiative to call out the Chinese government on the indeed woeful handling of the virus in its first month or so in uh, Wuhan. But since then, China's done much better, certainly than the United States and certainly better than India uh, on that matter. But the Australian government has been leaning forward into this. And that's a habit we've had going back to Vietnam days when we were you know, offering ourselves to the Americans of Vietnam before they even asked. So in that sense, there are some new bits, but there are old patterns as well. But you'd say it's more dangerous now. It's infinitely more dangerous now because United States and Australia think of themselves as liberal democracies, which they are in, in most respects, with obvious flaws on both, in both counts. On the other hand, liberal democracies are really quite good at persuading themselves of the need to go to war if the people on the other end are somehow completely unspeakable or different from us. So during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was a totalitarian enemy. They were pictured as being people you couldn't do any business with. Jan, I'm not sure how old you are, but some of us might remember that song that came out in about 1986 by Sting, Do the Russians Love Their Children Too? Which is, if you like, think about it, it's an extraordinary question to ask. China is now being portrayed in the Western media as pretty close to an unspeakable enemy. Now, clearly, the Western media has just woken up to what the Chinese government has been doing in Xinjiang province, that very huge province to its west. It's really, even if one discounts some of the reports as being either overblown or unfounded, there's clearly something very dreadful happening to Chinese Uyghur, mainly Muslim populations in that, in what the, the Chinese government presents as preemptive, preemptive counter-terrorism. And there are very clearly something close to concentration camps being uh, going on there. The problem about thinking about that is, is anyone who has been looking at what's happened uh, in Tibet since the 1950s, uh, where the Chinese government has behaved appallingly in terms of invasion, assimilation, indefinitely uh, what must be counted as concentration camps there, it's as if suddenly we are being presented with this new version of this without any historical context at all. So I think that's important. The other side of this is that when we start to talk about what should we do about China, we need to at least have a modicum of even-handedness. Now, no country is sort of without its double standards. But for a country like Australia, which really has operated on Manus Island and Christmas Island, for the last almost well, 20 years, what really amounts to concentration camps and 
what the United Nations calls uh, practices of torture, we ought to be a little more honest uh, about the problems on our side and the problems of, of our allies, as well as drawing attention to the undoubted human rights abuses in China. So we're at that point now where we're beginning to grapple with that. You've mentioned human rights in China, Tibet and Uyghur. How much more do you believe China is contributing to this crisis? That's a very good question. It's a very important one to ask, I think. Look, let me step back a bit. I think it's a long time since we have been able to view China as, if you like, a revolutionary socialist country. It's not. That's long since gone. It is one of the two or three largest capitalist economies in the world. There is this unfortunate amalgam, if you like, of uh, of a very repressive sort of Leninist dissent Communist Party, quite determined to preserve its own power, both politically and financially and economically. It's armed with a, a fairly ferocious state security apparatus. Forget about Tibet and Xinjiang, if you like, but there are very serious problems, not just in Hong Kong, but, for example, for workers organising um, for union rights. This is just the reality of China. I think, though, that we then need to talk about how we're going to talk about human rights. Are we talking about something where we're going to try and save the world in the sense of convert the dreadful Chinese to liberal democracy? Well, of course not. Well, one would say, that of course not, but that's precisely what uh, Australia and the United States tried to do in Afghanistan and Iraq with appalling consequences. So, in other words, you have to be very careful about how you proceed about this. I think that China is also contributing to the problem with the pretty clear decision in the last five to ten years associated with the leadership of Xi Jinping that China is going to, if you like, accept the fact that it is now certainly a great power and possibly in the future to become a global power and wants to be treated in the way that other great powers expect themselves to be treated, expect them to be treated. In other words, it can really do a fair bit of bullying under the banner of leadership. Now, America certainly does that. We certainly do that in the Pacific, to Pacific Island countries. So it's a question of how do you respond to this? I think Chinese leadership has been ill-advised about some of the ways in which it seems to have decided to behave, firstly, in the South China Sea, secondly, towards, uh, for example, the Chinese diaspora. There's no doubt that there are Chinese intelligence agents operating in Australia. There's no doubt there has been a squeeze um, from our coming out of embassies and consulates on some parts of that diaspora. I don't think that's acceptable. I think that should be stopped just in terms of playing by the, dip the proper diplomatic rules. Equally, it's very clear that China, like Russia, is a major centre of cyber attacks on a whole range of Western uh, government and financial targets. But you also need to remember that, for example, the Australian Signals Directorate, our largest intelligence organisation which runs our cyber security, has as its motto, protect our secrets and find out about theirs. In other words, we do our fair bit of cyber attacking as well, and you can be very clear that the National Security Agency in the United States does. All this is a long way round of saying, for Australia, we've got to get used to dealing with two imperially-minded players that are going to dominate 
our international relations from now on. We know about the United States. We're beginning to learn about China. So really what's required is an independent Australian foreign policy which doesn't sign us up for wars in the name of democracy or whatever else it might be. Um, China is a nuclear-armed country. The United States is a nuclear-armed country. There is always a risk in any so-called limited non-nuclear war, which is what's being talked about um, even by our government leaders like Peter Dutton, of that escalating into nuclear war. And very clearly, anything that starts to lead us down that path has to be avoided. Well, let's talk about Australia's contribution to the problem in recent years. We've done very well with trade with China. We've had the students here from China. We've made lots of money out of that. And I'm sure there are other areas as well. What's your assessment of that? I think we've behaved pretty stupidly all round. It's been clear for a long time that, you know, the, the saying goes, we've been riding on the miners' backs as we used to ride on the, um, the sheep's back in the 50s and 60s. The clear message has been it's never a good idea to be beholden just to one major export market. But the government has been, or successive governments, every government, has just been signed off on, OK, let's rely on China. And the Chinese themselves are very sensible about this and they have tried to diversify their supplies of iron ore and gas and other commodities they import from Australia. Uh, we haven't really had the fairly sensible position of at least minimally diversifying our markets for our raw materials. That's number one. Number two, I think we've treated international students in general, Chinese international students in particular, coming to our universities and our schools as well, appallingly. And you only have to look at the way people, um, international students have been treated during the pandemic. They've basically been abandoned by the Australian government, uh, which is content to make a lot of money out of them, but not content to, not willing to support them. And they can't go home, for example, at the moment. They still can't leave Australia. So we've been very foolish about the way we're doing this. Uh, many Chinese students uh, feel they're treated as cash cows. And as somebody who teaches in a university in Australia, I can only say that's absolutely right. And we must do much better in the future about this. So I think there are ways we could behave differently. Let's talk about the reactions from China. We've seen it in the area of trade. One high-up official in the Communist Party in China talked about white supremacy while speaking about Australia. Well, I think that's something that Australia really has to come to terms with. Of course, there are always going to be people in the Chinese hierarchy, governmental, party, military, who will be uh, bombastic, just as we have American generals sounding off about China and Russia when they shouldn't. They have senior people uh, saying things which are extremely unhelpful and regrettable. In general, though, for Australia, we have to face the fact that our foreign policy towards China, towards um, uh, the many countries of Asia in general, towards the Pacific, does show traces of the fact that Australia, as a state today, has its origin colonial invasion. And we really have to think that through. We need, if you like, to decolonise both in relation to external empire, in particular the United States, but we have to work through in our own society the fact that 
we really haven't dealt with the fact that what is called Australia is built uh, on conquest and, quite frankly, what many people would regard as genocide in its own right. So that's something that we have to go through. I think it's also, however, we need a, a balanced diplomacy about this, which says, which in itself doesn't make wildly provocative statements and then encourages the Chinese to tone down their own rhetoric, which don't help, which doesn't help them. The problem is not only are we white by and large, but we are conscious of it, which is the problem. And then the other thing is our principal allies, the Five Eyes, uh, United States, United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand and us, is very definitely run as a white fellows club. And that brings us to the a question that's really important apropos China, that we are now much more closely integrated militarily into that white fellows club than we have been in the past. And of course, we always have been to one degree or another. If there is a war between the United States and China, that automatically involves Pine Gap in particular. Pine Gap is the big electronic uh, intelligence base in central Australia, outside Alice Springs. And I have no doubt whatsoever that at the moment, the tasking schedules, which go week by week, month by month, about what they're going to be particularly aiming at, would be drawing up what's called an electronic order of battle, which helps the Americans work out where are the Chinese missiles, where are the Chinese radars, where are their command centres. Uh, even short of nuclear war, that information is going to be critical to an American attack on China. So the question of what China's doing, what America is doing, what we're doing, are all tied up, and we need to think, ther- think seriously about how we can begin to wind this down, at least to a level of civility and diplomacy, and then think through our options very carefully about how is Australia going to live between two empires. How provocative do you believe Australia is by sending warships up to the South China Sea? Well, I think it's it's very clearly intended to be provocative. You need to remember that we've been sending uh, aircraft over the South China Sea for at least 40 years. In other words, it's been part of Australia's operational division of labour between Japan, uh, between the United States and Australia, Japan and Australia. I think that it's partly the manner in which you do this. We've been fairly careful about the way we do it compared with the Americans. We're much more in your face. France is now beginning to join that uh, activity, which is unhelpful. There is a problem in the South China Sea. China has uh, built uh, what are undoubtedly important military installations uh, on islands that it's claimed as its territory to a very far extent, as far down as Indonesia, and this is really worrying, on pretty flimsy historical claims about it being territory, claims which are contested with just as much legitimacy or as little legitimacy by states which are much closer to this area, namely Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam and uh, the Philippines. Taiwan has military facilities on some of those islands. But in other words, again, a bit of even-handed honesty about what's going on would be very helpful here. Finally, Richard, if you were advising the Australian government now, what would you tell them? I would say it's a time for understanding that prudence is extraordinarily important in diplomacy. 
you can never tell what's really going to happen, so you need to be just sensible and careful. Secondly, I would say we need to think very carefully about where Australian interests align with those in the United States and where they don't. And in the case of dealing with China, Australia and China are going to be in the same geographical positions for, forever. America will sooner or later withdraw um, and go home in a substantial military sense. Uh, China is not going to go home. Uh, they are at home. We are at home. We have to work out a way of dealing with this. Thirdly, the possibility of war is absolutely something that must, must be repudiated and opposed wherever possible. It's not a matter of standing up for human rights and then saying, come what may, we'll accept what happens. Think about the way the world has been ripped apart by a simple virus, which has been appallingly mismanaged. Imagine what the effect of even a small war going to have, not just for the people of Taiwan, but the economies of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, China, United States, Australia. These are, going to, are extraordinarily interconnected economically. So anyone who has any fantasies that um, there can be some kind of quick, clean war to teach the Chinese lesson really has to be called out. This is stupid and dangerous. And lastly, we have to ask the Australian government to really think about the situation where the past 60 years of our uh, hosting of Pine Gap has got us to a situation where if there is a war between China and the United States, we are pulled into that war, like it or not, current uh, arrangements. Australian government has said it's in about the nuclear ban treaty, but Australia can't sign up to that uh, because the Pine Gap in particular is the nuclear and the non-nuclear elements which mix and are so closely interwoven they can't be separated. I don't think that's true. But secondly, what an extraordinary thing to say that a government has been so derelict in its duty of looking after Australian interests that we get drawn into nuclear war whether we like it or not. So those four things are something we really have to do. Prudence, being even-handed, avoiding war, and really thinking about our position in relation to what are really two imperially-minded powers. Thank you for all that. Glad you're with you, Jay. And you've been listening to an interview with Richard Tanter, who's Senior Research Associate at the Nautilus Institute and Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. When you compare an old-growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
Smartphone Stories is a fun, free workshop for anyone in the community who would like to make a film using just their smartphone. We're coming to the city of Yarra at the Bagunga Nanin North Fitzroy Library on Monday the 3rd and Monday the 10th of May. You can register for a place at www.smartphonestories.com. Proudly supported by Vic Health. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. An urgent alert has been raised in the Philippines following a number of attacks on people in the middle of the night, forcing them out of their homes and taken away by the military and police, and the murder of the National Director of the National Union of Journalists in the Philippines. The region is Bicol, and I asked human rights activist May Kotsakis from the Philippines where Bicol is in the Philippines. Uh, Bicol is the southernmost part of Luzon, which is the biggest island. In the Philippines, there are three major island groupings. The biggest one, which is an island, is the Luzon. That is the northern part of the Philippines. And Bicol is the southernmost part of that Luzon. Yes, that is a a region. It's composed of six uh, provinces. I actually was born in Bicol, so I am familiar with the with the place. Yes. One of the leaders of the NTFLK, or the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, which is an agency that was created by the 32 Red Tag and to attack activists, one of the leaders, General Parladi, is in charge of that part of the Philippines. He came actually to Australia last February 2020 to red tag uh, our organization as well as several Australians. What happened on the 2nd of May? There were two major events that happened on the 2nd of May. Uh, One was the arrest of two activists in uh, Albay. And that happened at 3.30 in the morning, you know, as the modus operandi of the military, Philippine military and the police, when they have to attack or invade a um, private home at the very early time of the morning when people are still sleeping. So one of the arrested is a Uniting Church pastor, and he is also the spokesperson of, uh, of Bayan. And the other one that was arrested is a very young, you know, uh, right, young person, the spokesperson of Anakbayan, which is the youth organization. So he, she is the spokesperson of Anakbayan in Bicol. She is only 20 years old. There was another attempt of an arrest, but the person that they were planning to arrest was not home. He wasn't arrested. And another an incident is the killing the killing of um, John Heredia. He is a journalist, and he is the national director of the National Union of Journalists in the Philippines. He is also the municipal administrator of 
a town in Capiz. Capiz is in Visaya, which is in the middle, the set of island in the middle of the Philippines. Where was he when he was killed? He was in front of a shop and he was killed by uh, two persons riding a motorcycle. So after he was shot, the motorcycle sped off. That was another sort of means of killing people in the Philippines. Many has already been killed, like uh, many activists has already been murdered in that manner, you know, where uh, one is driving and the other one at the back has the gun and shoot someone and then speed off. Sometimes they have, uh, you know, they have the mask, the helmet and the mask, so they cannot, uh, they cannot be recognized, and this is always the case. Had he been threatened before? John, all uh, activists in the Philippines, especially journalists, that are, you know, the, uh, the National Union of Journalists in the Philippines has all, always been threatened, you know. I've been, you, you remember uh, Maria Risa, which is the editor of uh, Rappler, who, who was sort of accused of, you know, of moral defamation and uh, was convicted. So the journalists in the Philippines, especially if they are reporting uh, on activism or they are reporting anything against the government, they are always threatened. And there has been so many journalists already killed. Go back to the activists who were pulled out of their homes in the middle of the night. What's happened to them? They are being um, detained in a police station in Albay. Albay is a province in the Philippines, in, in, in Bicol. They are both being uh, detained. So the arrest actually was done by more than 30 police and uh, a, a joint operation by uh, the police and the Criminal Investigation and Detection Group, or the CIDG, in Bicol region. So they are still uh, confirming whether the young uh, spokesperson of Anakbayan, Sasa, Sasa is her name, Sasa Santa Rosa, where is she being detained? Because sometimes the police will will not uh, you know will not uh, tell the people where they are being detained. Sometimes they have to hide them until really until the people really pressure you know pressure the authority to tell them. So the witnesses said that when they entered, when the police entered the house, everybody in the house were asked or were forced out of the house. So they were all forced out of the house. And uh, several police went inside the house, ransacked the house, and then later on they said, hey, we found a, a gun, we found a grenade, we found ammunition. Isn't that, you know, very obvious? Who would keep a gun and grenade inside a home? That, that happened on both of these arrests and in the arrest of so many uh, activists. So that's what happened. And then this person, if they happen to oppose, like they, they sort of uh, resist the arrest, then the police will just say they fought and they will be gunned down. That's what happened in the Bloody Sunday Massacre on March 7. They, uh, the police claimed that these people who they were trying to arrest fought so they have to, you know, they have to kill them because they have guns and they have grenades in their homes. So at the moment, there is no on the on the on the uh, notice. We we don't know yet where 
where the young lady is being uh, being held. Is this an example of what's happening all over the Philippines at the moment, even though an international inquiry is underway into human rights abuses in the Philippines? Yes, that is what is happening because Duterte won't allow an international group to enter the Philippines to investigate. So what they are saying is that is a uh, that is a violation of the Philippine sovereignty. You remember that um, Michelle Bachelet, the commissioner of the United Nations Human Rights Commission, she has a proposal and it was actually it was actually approved in the UNHCR HRC to send an international independent investigation to enter the Philippines and investigate on these human rights abuses. But Duterte won't allow that. He said that it is a violation of the sovereignty of the Philippines. So what we are doing, what is being done at the moment by several commissioners, are doing the investigation via online. So this is actually what we call the investigate PH, and there are several commissioners here in Australia that joined. They are, you know, like including Senator Rice. Senator Janet Rice, the former Senator Lee Rhiannon, and a UCCA, Mark Sinsak, who is the uh, Justice Mission, head of the Justice Mission of the Uniting Church of Australia. So they are actually part of that investigate behavior. So they they investigate, they uh, you know, go in online via Zoom and, and and talk to the victims, family of the victims of these atrocities, of the arrest and victims of those uh, killings. That's the only way that actually can be done to expose what is happening in the Philippines because Duterte keep on denying that the, these atrocities is happening. And I suppose also only one way that people can give their evidence fairly safely against the government and the police and the military. It's actually very difficult when you say safe. It's actually very difficult because they don't seem to uh, respect any human rights at all. You remember the 30 said, I think early March, he actually ordered the police and the military to kill them, kill them all. Don't worry about human rights. He actually, you know, just to kill them. Just the same as the as his uh, order to the police when he actually he actually had his inauguration speech just over a month after he was elected when he promised that he's going to get rid of drugs in the Philippines and he said uh, shoot them dead any suspected criminal or suspected drug addicts so no respect of human rights at all there is no no uh, consideration of the safety of whether he is you know a person is just suspected and there is no benefit of any rule of law or any hearing or any evidence, but just on suspicion. And this has been happening since Duterte was elected. So it is very dangerous. When you speak of safety, unless they go underground, unless they hide and, you know, they cannot be found, so it is actually very dangerous for the people, especially for activists or any critics of the Duterte government. So what we're doing is actually uh, soliciting help from overseas, from our international solidarity friends, because at least here in Australia, we are safe. 
we can speak out here without, you know, I mean, we are being red tag, we are being attacked, we are being branded as a terrorist supporter, but at least they cannot touch us, you know, like uh, arrest us or or kill us. Well, I don't know what the Australia, how far the Australia is going to support the Duterte government, because at the moment, Australia is supporting the Duterte government. In many ways. In many ways, like, uh, well, uh, Australia is has a military aid, as we know that, although it's being hidden, uh, the Operation Augury. You know, I think 2018 was it, uh, you know, news from the ABC that Australia has has hidden how much actually it is giving the Duterte government. So, so financial aid, supplying them with the military equipment, including drones, and training also military personnel in, you know, in the Philippines and here in Australia. So Australia continued to train military personnel. And when we actually questioned that, we wrote to the uh, foreign minister and the uh, before, they said that they are training the Philippine military and the police on human rights, which is really ironic, isn't it? They are training them on human rights, but the military is not respecting human rights as uh, is evidence on what is happening in the Philippines. At least we can get that information out here in Australia about what is happening. Yes, that's, that's all that we can do at the moment. We're actually campaigning, uh, you know, I think I have mentioned this before. We were planning actually last year, uh, if COVID didn't hit Australia, we were planning to go to Canberra to protest in front of the parliament because we are calling on Australian government to stop sending military support and stop cooperating with uh, the 30 government because, uh, I mean, it cannot be hidden anymore. Internationally, the 30 is known to be a fascist. I mean, the killings in the Philippines is uh, horrible. The attacks on activists, critics, human rights workers, and even political opponents is actually not seen before. It is, uh, it is horrible. Okay, May, we'll keep looking at this issue. Oh, thank you very much, uh, John. Thank you for sort of, uh, yes, uh, popularizing, you know, what is happening in the Philippines for let, letting uh, people know. I've been speaking with May Kutsakis, human rights activist from the Philippines, now living in Australia. And talking to May emphasizes the importance of 3CR in getting the news out of what's happening in countries who don't respect the human rights of their citizens. So the Radiothon's coming up in June. I do hope that when the time comes, you'll be able to help us stay on air for yet another year. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. 
If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you here on Community Radio 3CR. ever had a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 volunteer intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our resource centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter. In recent months, former WorkSafe Victoria prosecuting solicitor and former lecturer in employment law at RMIT and regular contributor to John Menadieu's Pills and Irritations, Max Costello, has spoken about the travesty of justice due to Australian government's treatment of asylum seekers. But today, Max is in a more positive frame of mind in relation to the above as exhibited by the title of his latest Pearls and Irritations contribution, quote, Australia's cruelty to refugees, which legal straw might break the camel's back in the regime's systematic cruelty? So it's welcome back, Max, to Tuesday Time. It's great that we can be talking positive after such a while. Where do we start? Yes, well, there are two stories, Jen. Uh, One is a case that's already running in the Supreme Court in Adelaide and it's scheduled to run for 12 weeks. I hope to go and sit in on it for a few days in a week or so if it's still running. But it's a civil case. A former detainee is suing the Commonwealth Government, in effect, Home Affairs, for failing to abide by the common law duty of care. He was in detention in the 2000 to 2005, so it goes back a fair way. He's an Iranian refugee. He was held at Curtin, the Curtin detention in Western Australia from 2000 to 2002, then at Baxter in South Australia for the, for the next three years. Unusually, this case, Home Affairs, Commonwealth, rarely defends these cases that seek a financial outcome, a payment of an award of damages right, in compensation for the maltreatment. Uh, they usually settle them. Uh, of course, once they're settled, that means there's no uh, the complainant uh, doesn't need to prove the case. All that has to happen is the court has to approve the amount of the terms of the settlement. It's a, by the settled means a payment of substantial amount of enough money to satisfy the complainant. And if there's no need to prove the case, then, of course, no witnesses are called. 
and the media is, I'll put it this way, deprived of juicy evidence from the detainee concerned and perhaps others. There might be evidence of medical neglect, but none of that juicy stuff gets heard firsthand from witnesses because the case is settled. And that's the that's the way the Commonwealth Home Affairs has treated these cases, or the, the vast majority of them. But in this case, they're defending it. And one possible reason is that, as the ABC News report of this, uh, this case said, there are more than 60 detainees with similar claims against the Commonwealth and two private companies, that means International Health and Medical Services, Proprietary Limited, IHS, and or Commonwealth you know, security guards. So those 60 cases, we think the, the Commonwealth is defending this uh, case of Mr. Sadat, is his name, he's uh, from Iran, because if the Commonwealth can defeat his claim, then they might be in a strong position to defeat the 60 other cases that are in the pipeline. Just to conclude on, for the moment on, on this case, Sadat succeeds, who knows how much uh, will be awarded by the court, but but it's possibly, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollars, potentially perhaps up to a million dollars. And if you multiply that across the 60 cases, we look at, and plus, of course, each one, the, the Commonwealth would be ordered to pay the, the complainant's costs. So you might be looking at $80 million all up at the end of these all these cases. So and that's probably why the case is being defended in this particular instance. Okay, I'll, I'll pause there, Jan. That's, that's, that's one case. Can I ask you first, though, Max, why it's scheduled for 12 weeks? That would be based on what the court thinks is a realistic estimate from the, the parties, that that's how long it would take to hear all the witnesses, um, cross-examine them, and then make uh, closing submissions. Now, so Dad himself, you know, he... You see, what has to be proved in these common law cases, that's judge-made law, you know, determined by precedents over the years or, in fact, under the centuries, because they go back to England. What has to be proved, first of all, is that the party complained of, in this case, Home Affairs, has a duty of care to the complainant. Then, secondly, you have to prove that that duty was not just breached, they didn't just fail to look after him, but they breached it negligently, quite seriously breached. And thirdly, you have to prove, and Mr. Sadat has to prove, or his evidence and other evidence has to prove, that negligent breach of the common law duty of care caused him, you know, identifiable and serious harm. Now, since he's claiming mainly it's psychological or psychiatric harm, not so much physical, well, that's a bit tricky. Psyche, you know, evidence of uh, harm, to, he's going to have to call uh, psychiatrists and other medicos who can say that, yes, if a person were treated like that, then harm, serious harm can be done to their psychological or psychiatric health. So that's, you know, high-level expert evidence. And then, then of course, there's cross-examination by the barrister for home affairs, you know. So I think it's just a measure of how long it would take to work through all that evidence, examination, cross-examination, sometimes re-examination, so, and then there's submissions at the close. 
that's what the, the, the court estimates is a realistic time to get through it all. As you said, if it's settled out of court, none of that information reaches the public. Surely the government's opening <laughs> itself up to a great deal by doing it this way? Exactly. There are two, I'm just talking hypothetically here, I'm not commenting on the case itself, but either or both of these possibilities. The Commonwealth Home Affairs thinks that this case is defeatable, that they've got a fair, you know, a good chance of being able to reject or rebut his case so that the court would find you not find the case proven. When I say proven, of course, it's a civil case. This is a civil case. There's no criminal aspect to it. There's no prospect fine, etc., etc. It's purely civil, and the balance, the, the level of proof in civil cases is lower uh, than in criminal. As we all know, is you've got to prove everything but beyond reasonable doubt. In a civil case, you only have to prove your claim quote, on the balance of probabilities, unquote. That is, in, in ordinary terms, that your case is, is more likely than not to be true. So it's a lower, a lower threshold of, of proof, even so. So that's, you know, the way that stacks the odds in favour of the complainant, Mr. that. So the Commonwealth, to go back to what I was saying, the Commonwealth either believes the case is weak or there are holes in it and, and it can be defeated and he won't even be able to prove his case on the balance of probabilities or the Commonwealth is so worried about these other 60 cases in the wings, you know, they might lose, they might have to fork out for Mr. Sadat, but since they know that 60 cases are very similar cases are sort of in the pipeline, so to speak, they think it's worth taking. If we can knock off this one, we'll save ourselves potentially, I'm just guessing a figure, of course, $80 million. So even if it's, uh, you know, they're not too sure of defeating his claims, it's worth taking that risk because if they defeat his claims, uh, then uh, the other 60 might withdraw their cases or if they run them, they might, they might lose too. And that saves the taxpayers, uh, you know, I'm just guessing 80, maybe 100 million uh, down the track. And what's the criminal case? The criminal case... I'll just foreshadow, and I think we should come later, you've probably got it in, to what happens if uh, Mr. Sadat wins, you know. I'll come to that. But the criminal case, that hasn't started yet, but today, as we speak, it's up for what they call first mention, an administrative process. And Ian Rintoul from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney is going to sit in on the case today and see what happens and report back to to us all. Uh, it's usually a matter of, well, what's the next step in the case? Where are the parties at? And uh, when might be a date for commencement? Or are there are preliminary steps that need to be followed through first? So it's just an administrative, a case management type hearing. There's no witnesses will be called. The case proper won't start. It's the first ever criminal prosecution relating to the maltreatment or alleged maltreatment of a detainee by Home Affairs. The case is also brought against International Health and Medical Services Proprietary Limited, IHMS. So that's the... Um, the oh, perhaps in a moment I'll tell you what the charges 
actually alleged. I won't go into huge detail, but I do have a copy of the charges, but I'll, I'll comment on what the charges actually allege if, if you want. How will the case develop as opposed to the civil case? Because there are two charges against each, two charges against uh, the Commonwealth, in effect, Home Affairs, two charges against IHMS, they're very similar. The first charge against both of them is that they breached the Health and Safety Act by failing to provide and maintain a safe system of work at the second, the Baxter facility. The second charge is that they failed to provide necessary training, information and supervision to the mental health staff. That's the IHMS staff. What happened, I should, is very important to add, the result of that, or sorry, following that, you know, lack of proper care, the 26-year-old Iraqi national took his own life at Sydney's Villawood Immigration Detention Centre. So this, so this is nothing to do with uh, South Australia and Western Australia. He was held, he had been uh, a detainee at the Villawood Immigration Detention Centre in Sydney. And uh, yes, he, he took his own life. And so the charges, they're the two charges. Now, how it's going to develop, of course, is um, that the prosecution has to prove the case, so it has to bring its witnesses, and of course, the detainee is no longer with us, so the evidence would be from some of these, the witness list would include a ComCare inspector, and ComCare is the federal or Commonwealth health and safety regulator. Uh, we have in Victoria WorkSafe, which uh, enforces the Occupational Health and Safety Act of, here in Victoria, in the Commonwealth, and in fact in uh, four of the other states and both territories, there are almost identical uh, laws called Work Health and Safety Acts. They're very similar to the older style RHS Acts, but they, as you can tell, they impose the duty on the parties running detention, running Commonwealth workplaces, which of course include detention facilities, duty to provide and maintain a safe workplace, safe system of work, and to properly train and supervise staff. So the case will unfold, I would imagine the investigating ComCare inspector would be called to, to go through what he found. There would be people, presumably, who have also made witness statements, affidavits on oath or affirmation, that, for example, I don't know, I just this is hypothetical, there might be, for example, one or more IHMS nurses or doctors who privately were very, very concerned that they weren't getting the proper information or instruction or the nursing, it sounds like the mental health staff, I, I would imagine, mainly the nursing staff, were left, I'm just imagining all this, on a, perhaps on a weekend, left unsupervised or without proper help. So the people who've made affidavits about what they saw, experienced, and there might also, probably through the inspector, he or she might have obtained documents from Home Affairs and IHMS. For example, a document saying, these are the care arrangements you have to follow. And then evidence that they weren't followed so that the, the, the person, the detainee was left without proper specialist care, for example. So I'm just hypothesising there'd have to be evidence from witnesses um, and it might be in 
in-person evidence from the various people. And also, there would have to be expert evidence too that the processes or the failures of process involved fell so far short of what's required by the Act that they were a breach of the Act's uh, duty, duty requirements. So that's the sort of thing. But again, as with a civil case that's already running, you need to prove things by evidence and uh, admissible evidence and uh, as I've said the standard of proof, the level of proof beyond reasonable doubt is very exacting and so prosecuting authorities such as Comcare don't lay charges that have to be proved beyond reasonable doubt unless they've got very solid evidence. So just concluding on this point, the charges were actually laid by the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions which you know handles all the serious uh, police cases, murder, um, and so on. They're you know high-level cases um, because these these the, the charges laid. If, if the two parties were found guilty of both charges, the the, the maximum fine on both of them is 1.5 million. So add that to the maximum available to the court if they both found guilty is three million dollars per accused party per defendant. So now, you never get the maximum fine, but uh, that's, that's how the case will evolve. That again, after the evidence is given by the inspector or inspectors and other people involved or providing expert evidence on the situation, after each person has given evidence, the Defence Home Affairs Barrister and IHMS Barrister will cross-examine, you know, to try to find weaknesses or inconsistencies or lack of credibility whatever to try to challenge the evidence the evidence in chief and um, so similar process of evidence given evidence challenged uh, as in the as in the civil case but the standard of proof of course is much higher and the case hasn't even as I say we'll we'll find out from Ian Rintoul later what the court has said, okay, the next step is this uh, and, and when that might occur. So it's very early days, yes. What's remarkable about this case is that it's the first ever criminal prosecution under the Work Health and Safety Act. Now, advocates and uh, my advocate friend Margaret Sinclair has sometimes with the Doctors for Refugees on behalf of Doctors for Refugees has written to Comcare getting close to 60 times in the last uh, five years with cases of apparent serious breaches of the Health and Safety Act, mainly to do with health, asking Comcare to enforce the law, mainly by an issue of an improvement notice. The inspector looks at the evidences, look, uh, Home Affairs at, at Detention Centre X, you're breaching the Act because you're failing to take proper medical care of the detain X or failing to protect him or her from serious assaults by circo guards or whatever and with it's a medical case the doctors for refugees will get with the permission of the detainee a copy of their medical file and give that to Comcare and say Margaret will say well here's all the evidence you need to show that the law is being breached for heaven's sake issue an improvement notice that sends to home affairs and IHMS and Serco and, and Border Force. Border Force is the relevant part of Home Affairs in all this. They manage detention centres. They supervise Serco and IHMS. And their own website says, we are responsible for the health and welfare of detainees. Anyway, 
all Margaret and sometimes with D4R is, is asking is issue an improvement notice that says an inspector issue an improvement says one home affairs you're breaching the Health and Safety Act section X of the the Act is how you breach it why we say it's an offence against the Act that you're involved in and here by reasonable date X down the track you must stop this you know get compliance with the Act do what the Act says you must. And inspectors don't have to, but they usually do suggest in part of this improvement notice, well, here's how we suggest you could stop breaching the Act and start complying by doing X, Y, Z. Your court case is just a, a document, a, a, a compliance document, and if Home Affairs doesn't comply, it's a very serious criminal offence. But they haven't even issued an improvement notice. Um, they just said in every case, oh, we don't see any breach of the Health and Safety Act here. No matter how compelling the evidence is, it's an extraordinary failure to enforce the law. But out of the blue, uh, here we are on the 3rd of March this year, through the uh, Commonwealth DPP, Comcare has actually enforced laying criminal charges. First time ever. So it's really a, quite a, a remarkable uh, development. It took Margaret and me by surprise and... Um, we can only conclude that there's been a bit of a change of approach at the top of Comcare instead of virtually protecting the lawbreaker. They're now actually doing what they should have done all along and enforce the law. So it's a remarkable development. I don't know whether this is relevant or not, particularly in the case of the civil charges. Asylum seeking is not a criminal offence. It's a human rights under the Refugee Convention for the... United Nations. Yes. Has that got any relevance to a case where you're talking about someone who's been held in detention, which, according to the UN, is illegal? Yes. It's, on the one hand, highly relevant and, and outrageous because Australia ratified, that is, agreed to and signed up to comply with the 1951 Refugees Convention under Menzies in 1954, Australia uh, ratified that convention. And subsequently, let me add, there was a protocol that was added in 1967 to extend the reach of the convention to places beyond Europe and, and times beyond World War II, because originally, of course, it was focused on the uh, refugees from Nazi Germany, so it was sort of a bit European-centric. Well, so Australia not only ratified the original convention, but it's ratified under Whitlam in 73 the protocol that extends its reach. So yes, Australia should be complying with what it's signed up to, but the High Court has held, and this applies not only the Refugees Convention, but a range of other uh, international human rights uh, conventions or treaties, the High Court has said that unless and until it is made part of an Australian law, a statute, a parliamentary piece of legislation. Until that happens to it, it's only got moral force. It can't, the party can't be compelled to comply with it. So that's, you know, that's why people have been calling for years for a Human Rights Charter or Human Rights Act. And Australia is the only developed nation that, that hasn't got uh, a Human Rights Act or Charter. So that's that's the um, answer to your question. Oh, but just finally, the convention as such is not part of either case. It's not part of 
the common law case because that complaint is based on a breach of the common law, the judge-made law duty of care. It doesn't allege breach of a convention and neither does the Health and Safety Act to mention, which case mentioned the, the UN Refugees Convention. It only mentions the Work Health and Safety Act. How can I put it? The, the Refugee Convention is there in the background and if Australia had complied with that convention fully, comprehensively and in, in good faith, we probably wouldn't have either case being brought nowadays. That was a very good question, Jan, but there's your long answer. Right. Okay, well, we will await the results of those two cases, but I'd just like to, before you go, we have talked before about the refugees stuck in motel or hotel rooms in Australia. Even before these cases began, refugees were jackbooted out of a Kangaroo Point Hotel, bundled into a plane without any of their belongings, only the clothes they stood up in. That's not a government that looks as though it's doing anything for refugees, does it? Well, that's right, and it doesn't have any bearing, uh, direct bearing on, on either case because the Mr. Dat's case goes back to the situation 2000-2005. It doesn't directly impinge on the whether the criminal case will be proven or not because the events were back in 2019. However, as I say in my very recent article in Pearls and Irritations, I asked, my, my article is headed, just scrolling up to the top now, Australia's cruelty to refugees, colon, which legal straw, in single inverters, might have break the camel's back? Well, in that case, I make the point that any... Uh, alert and astute organisation that's charged with serious criminal offences very promptly makes sure that from then on that organisation is fully complying with the law they are accused of breaching so that if down the track the organisation is found guilty their barrister can get up and say to the judge to the judge who's about to impose sentence well your honour let me tell you that since those charges were laid my client uh, has been fully complying with this law and not repeated that alleged offence ever, no, nowhere near it. They're fully complying and giving, you know, instances, examples, details. And also that shows remorse. Uh, my client has well and truly learned its lesson and uh, we'd ask you to bear this remorse and uh, compliant, unfailing compliant behaviour in mind when you decide what, if any, penalty you impose on my client. That just makes so much common sense. But what does Home Affairs do? They get charged on the 3rd of March, and six weeks later, which is plenty of time to get the house in order, six weeks later, they do what you've just described. They treat the law with apparent disregard, the very law they've charged with breaching, and they very clearly are not at all troubled by the fact that they've put the psychiatric, the mental health of detainees under great threat. I mean, that, treating people like that, leaving them, as you say, they've just get straight in the bus onto the plane with just the clothes you've got on. Um, and some of them, you know, must have only had short bit shorts and bare feet. They've since supplied them with pants and thongs. But, I mean, they've left all their all their possessions have just been left behind. Their phones, oh, their phones was all their phones were confiscated.
confiscated. We understand that three of them were going to be handcuffed on the plane journey, and they just arrive having been stripped of everything. As Ian Rintoul commented, Rack commented, um, this sort of thing has happened before. There several times these people, they were originally from Manus. I conclude by saying Home Affairs Minister Andrews should be reminding those in charge, which is Mr Pizzullo in Secretary of the Department of Human Affairs and Ms Commissioner Utram, the Commissioner of Border Force, should be reminding those two people in charge of phrases such as, quote, the rule of law, unquote, and, quote, reputational damage. And so I conclude at this stage that... Uh, Home Affairs is giving no indication of uh, being swayed by being charged criminally. And going back momentarily to the civil case, you might recall that these very same Manus refugees that are getting busted with what they've got on, they were brutally removed from the former Manus detention centre, the, um, the processing, the offshore processing centre. And that took place at the very time that the court in Victoria was approving the $70 million settlement. Even even if Mr Sadat wins, I hope like crazy that the attitude shown by Home Affairs back in the Manus settlement, in other words, they didn't care at all. They paid $70 million to, to compensate for the to settle the claim. They just went ahead and kept behaving the same way. So... Um, Fingers crossed, Jen, but um, there'd have to be, a, as I say in concluding, uh, a 180-degree change of approach from the leadership of the Home Affairs Border Force. We live in hope. We do. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Jen. And Max Costello is a former WorkSafe prosecuting solicitor and former lecturer in employment law at RMIT and, of course, a regular contributor to John Menager's Pearls and Irritations. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and Streaming Life at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Ramsey Clark 
died recently at his home in New York City at the age of 93. He has been described as an Attorney General who turned against imperialism. Anti-war and peace activist Brian Terrell remembers him well, having travelled to Iraq with him in 1998 and having him come to testify for him in court three times. And we'll hear all about the latter. But I asked Brian first about the early life and work of this great humanitarian. Ramsey Clark had a very interesting childhood. His, his father was actually the Attorney General of the United States uh, many years before he was. His father was also uh, Supreme Court Justice, and he retired when Ramsey Clark was made uh, President Johnson's Attorney General. That was back in 1967 uh, when his father retired from the Supreme Court and President Johnson then appointed Thurgood Marshall, the, the first uh, black justice of the Supreme Court, to, to take his father's place. So all that worked out uh, very serendipitously. But when he was a young man, he was born in 1927, and he was 17 years old. Ramsey dropped out of high school and joined the U.S. Marines. He entered World War II late in the game. Uh, it's the aftermath of the war. And one of the things he ended up doing was being a courier, and he carried papers back and forth from various places around Europe to Nuremberg, where the Nazi war criminals were on trial. So you have this young man whose father is a judge, knows something of the law, and he finds himself in the justice courts at Nuremberg, and he watches these, you know, German politicians and German military high brass on trial for crimes against humanity. Uh, is something I heard him mention many, many times, that as a young man, uh, still in his teens, having that uh, exposure to attempts at bringing uh, war criminals to justice. So he uh, became, in, in the John F. Kennedy years, he was worked for the Justice Department, and he was very much involved in the beginning of, because it was under President Kennedy, that there was beginnings of civil rights and voters' rights legislation and part of his job was to to enforce the states who were very reluctant to allow these civil rights laws to, to go into effect as a prosecutor for the US government. He was in the position of trying to enforce civil rights laws. And then when President Kennedy was killed and, and President Johnson took over, he later became uh, Johnson's attorney general in the United States, that's the head prosecutor for the federal government. As the uh, head prosecutor for the United States during the Vietnam years, he also, as well as the civil rights work that he did, he also had to, he was in charge of prosecuting young men who refused to go into the military to fight in Vietnam. And one case uh, was called the Boston Five. These were people who were too old to, to face the draft into the military. But these people, they were, uh, one was the uh, famous baby doctor, uh, pediatrician, Dr. Spock. And there was also several clergy people and university academics who had worked with young people who were charged with the federal crime of aiding and abetting draft resistance. They were encouraging the young people in their care and uh, helping them getting into the military 
while the Vietnam War was raging. He was uh, supervising the prosecution of these five very, very good people. So I think he, he said when that was over, he said, we won the case, and that was the worst part. And he came to the realization that the people that he was prosecuting were not the criminals, <laughs> but the government that he was serving, you know, in the case of the Vietnam War at that point. That the government was the criminal, and that these young people who refused to fight in Vietnam and the, you know, their teachers and, and ministers and mentors who encouraged them, that they were the law-abiding people. This had a huge effect. So when President Johnson uh, was replaced by President Nixon, of course, uh, that meant that uh, Ramsey Clark lost his position. While keeping other law practice going, he immediately, though, came into the uh, came to defend anti-war protesters, and he continued that throughout, you know, throughout his the rest of his life. And you know, that's where I got to know him. Can I take you back to the early '60s and Jim Crow and the Black Marches from Selma, Alabama? Can you talk about those? One of the things that was happening with the you know, the Freedom Rides at that time, and it, it needs to, uh, I'm afraid I don't have the years in front of me, but the course of of events was not that the Supreme Court outlawed segregation on interstate travel. Uh, what this was about public buses that were going between states, that the Supreme Court had actually ruled that it was against the law to to segregate, that the states could not outlaw black people and white people traveling together, uh, sitting next to each other in the same parts of the buses, but it was still going on. Uh, you know, despite the efforts of, of Ramsey Clark and others to, to enforce the, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court's order, the Supreme Court order still needed people being active in the street. It took It took people who were willing to risk getting beaten and jailed uh, to ride together, uh, black and white together on those buses for this change change to occur. This was a time when the kind of prejudice that still exists and the kind of, you know, police brutality and the the racism and the apartheid, really, the difference is from then and now is mostly that at that time, it was it was legal. These things were these you know, separate codes of law for black people and white people were a part of the law. And Ramsey Clark and President Kennedy were part of changing what the letter of the law says. But when the letter of the law is changed, it still needs people to to in, in, in enforce this. I can, if I jump ahead, so that one of the times that Ramsey Clark defended me in court. The uh, judge was fascinated to hear him, allowed him to speak, fascinated as he was talking about international law and what that has to do with domestic law. And the judge said to him, uh, this is all very well. So we have this international law, but, but who enforces it? What's the enforcement mechanism? And he pointed to me and my friends who are on trial for trespassing at a drone base. You know, He pointed at us and said, well, they are. And then he pointed to the judge and said, and so are you, that we all have this responsibility that that we can have uh, the finest laws on the books, 
we can get rid of the, the so-called Jim Crow laws. We can say that it's illegal to discriminate against people because of their color, their religion, uh, their sexual orientation, et cetera. We can, we can have those laws, but they, the enforcement mechanism still comes down to, you know, people taking, you know, uh, acting in responsible and lawful ways. Otherwise, those, those laws are, are dead letters. He was, uh, Ramsey Clark was at a very important time in American history when those laws were changing, but recognized that, uh, that real social change happens not only in the legislatures and the courthouses, but it has to happen on the streets as well. And he spent uh, much of the rest of his life defending people who were uh, accused of crimes, but in, in Ramsey's mind were actually not, not criminal at all. Brian, you mentioned that he left school early to join the Marines. When did he go back to education to get a law degree? You know, immediately after the war, you know, went back to school and the you know, University of Texas at Austin and the University of Chicago and Chicago, University of Chicago Law School. So he's, yeah, he was a, uh, a Texan originally, and uh, that's where he first was admitted to the bar in 1950. You no, know, like uh, many people during World War II, he took a, you know, he took a break from his education and then, then returned to it. He's been described as a committed internationalist. Can you talk about that part of his life? In 1998, I traveled with Ramsey and a number of other people to to Iraq uh, at the time of the, their sanctions against the uh, Iraqi government that the United States and the UN were, were imposing. You know, he traveled to uh, uh, North Korea. He worked, supported... Well, he, he, he defended in international courts and in local courts in various places some very un, unpopular people. And at one time when he was testifying in a case I was uh, defended in, in in Las Vegas, another drone case, the prosecutor was trying to um, defame Ramsey Clark by asking him, he like pointed at him and said, and you believe that Saddam, you have written that Saddam Hussein shouldn't have been executed. And Ramsey answered it very, very, very well. He said, I don't believe anyone should be executed. And I certainly don't believe anybody should have the death penalty without a fair trial. And Saddam Hussein did not have a fair trial. And he said it really, mat- it really matters that, that the most, even the most unpopular people, if there's any justice, there has to be justice for, for the people we don't like. And also he predicted that it would be a horrible thing, there'd be no reconciliation in Iraq if Saddam Hussein doesn't get a fair trial. And he didn't get a fair trial, and there has not been reconciliation. But one of the times I met him, it was he had just come back from uh, a visit to Vietnam, this would have been like 2012 or so. He was just very, very happy, and he was talking about how, you know, he was in Vietnam just after the war, and he had gone back, and he was talking about how how much things have improved, how the lives of the people, how they've rebuilt. And he spoke about how people living very beautiful lives and people loving one another and taking care of each other 
it struck me is I haven't heard anybody talk about any place in the world <laughs> like that in years and years because people travel and, and and I almost always hear stories about you know things the economy and the and the environment all human relations things getting worse but he was able to do some uh, beauty and resilience and how uh, society that he saw with great horror his own government trying to destroy and to see that the things were better. How strong was his commitment to the people of Cuba? He traveled to, to Cuba and um, you know spoke out in the United States in a very, very unpopular thing to do in the U.S. He um, yeah, spoke out against the sanctions sanctions in Cuba that, that, that uh, you know, have been there that continue to this day. You know, and he traveled to the Philippines, to India, South Africa during the apartheid years. India spent his life doing very, very good work and uh, not caring about his career or his reputation and always with just the most tremendous respect for people he worked with. I never had the feeling at the times that I... I'm not a lawyer or even a college graduate, but on all the occasions where you'd help me and people like me, he had resources and knowledge that we didn't have, of course, but he never treated us like he was the expert and, and we weren't. And I, and I think this happened internationally, too. He, he, you know, he met people where they were. He was uh, friends with religious people. He was friends with atheists. He was friends with people who um, I would see as very uh, doctrinaire, Marxists of different stripes. He bridged all those chasms that sometimes we on the left are burdened by. He was also a writer? Yes. Oh, what, what are his books? Yeah, he, he wrote lots of books, several books, and he wrote many, many um, legal treatises that, that were very, very important. What one hears, it's really in 1970, he wrote a book, Crime in America, Observations on Its Nature, Causes, and Prevention and Control. And he wrote a book about, um, in 92, a couple books about the about the war in in the Gulf and the, the Iraq, Iraq War. U.S. You know, fire this time, the U.S. war crimes in the Gulf. And he did a very... Um, knowledgeable legal report on the U.S. war crimes in Iraq, listing them. And another book that he wrote about the time that we traveled to Iraq together, uh, The Challenge to Genocide, Let Iraq Live. So he was able to, it's interesting, as I'm looking at that, he was, the the sanctions that the U.S. had against Iraq during those years, Madeleine Albright, who was the uh, Secretary of State of the United States, and during much of that time, and the, the ambassador to the United Nations was asked in an interview, because at the time, this, these sanctions are the, the, the most complete that were ever enforced in history. UNICEF had announced that there were more than 500,000 children just under the age of five had died as a result of the sanctions, because during the, during the war, the, the, uh, the very modern society was was destroyed, its infrastructure, its uh, water treatment, the electricity, and it was, it was uh, and they were not allowed to rebuild it. The things that you would need to rebuild were not allowed in. And uh, tremendous death 
and she was asked, Madeline Albright was asked if it was worth the price, and and she said yes. It's interesting now, just a few days ago, President Joe Biden used the word genocide to describe what, what the Turks did with the Armenians just about 100 years ago. I think that is something that needs to be said, that we need to use those words when, when appropriate. But Ramsey Clark in 1998 had the courage to use those words to describe U.S. actions in Iraq. But that wasn't just a slur to, to throw at somebody else, but that was something that he knew that, that, that we needed to, the United States needs needed to own that word, you know, to, that this that word describes not just what somebody else did someplace far away a hundred years ago, but, but that, that that's something that we, you know, that our nation has done. I'm speaking today with peace activist Brian Terrell, and he's speaking about his friend and mentor, Ramsey Clark, a great humanitarian from the United States who recently died. How did you come to be on that visit to Iraq in 1998? This trip, again, during these sanctions that started in 1991 and continued until after the the U.S. invasion, and and, I think they continued until 2004, during those years, it was the United States had no, uh, the, you know, the laws were not only not to buy and sell with, with Iraq, but we were, but as U.S. citizens, we weren't supposed to go there. And a group that I worked with, Voices in the Wilderness, that later turned into Voices for Creative Nonviolence, had organized um, many, many trips to to Iraq. And then the International Action Center was a group that Ramsey Clark was working with. So there's a, b- a bunch of groups together, and there were about 80-some Americans who traveled together, flew to Amman, and then, then we chartered buses to get from Amman, Jordan, into, into Iraq. And we were the largest group of U.S. citizens to visit Iraq during all those years. There were hardly any – the number of journalists who from the United States and from the West anywhere who went into Iraq during those years is very, very, very small went with carry-on luggage, and we had brought as much uh, donated medicines and other medical gear, and even medical textbooks were banned from being imported into Iraq. We carried a few tons of medicines and other equipment into Iraq, and it's it's sad because it's the country of, you know, 20-some million people, and, you know, we had a couple tons of, of medicine, but it was the biggest shipment ever during those years. So it was really a, really a drop in the bucket. It was very, very small. It was symbolic. And we were, we were uh, threatened with 12 years in prison and a million-dollar fine for taking this trip. We were very, very open about it, and we were threatened with that, told the U.S. State Department and U.S. Treasury Department that we were traveling to Iraq, and we gave them uh, the list of all the material that we were taking, and, uh, and they were furious, but they, they, they let us go. Uh, there were no direct uh, consequences from that one. There was a film made from that trip. There were several films made during that time. Uh, one very effective was a State of Siege. And I'm not sure if that was made before or after that, that trip. But um, it, uh, we had several photographers and videographers with us as we went 
to, to see the, the state of that place, uh, Baghdad and Basra were the places that, that, that I had seen, um, and especially Baghdad, quite a modern city. Modern hospitals, as hospitals were as, as uh, like you would see in your cities or we'd see here in the United States, um, state of the art, but that because of the uh, electricity only hours a day, if that, the water quality was like uh, the sewage goes into the Tigris and Euphrates and gets taken out and drink, <laughs> and uh, no window screens and no bed sheets and like for for by the time I was there it was like more than eight years where the, they had no supplies they had no uh, antiseptics the hospitals were just pretty much places where people went to die one room that I that I at each of the hospitals is just saw. Uh, they would just take the uh, incubators that would have that would be for premature and underweight babies for new newborns that were in trouble and to, to help them survive. But because electricity was off most of the time, and because the spare parts these are very intricate, complex machines, and the same same things that uh, computer chips or whatever the things that we would make for for repairing. Uh, a baby's incubator could also go into a, the guidance of a missile or something, and so so none of that was allowed in. You know, chlorine could be made into a weapon, so they had no chlorine. But, so it was a very frightening, very uh, heavy scene to, to to take in. What did he do when he went back home after that visit? How did he let the people know what he'd seen and heard? Everybody did things as they as they could. Uh, you know, Ramsey Clark, of course, had a uh, a higher platform than some of us to speak. And another person on our trip was a, a Catholic bishop was with us. And, and there were teachers. I had to get the money for my passage. I begged from lots of institutions and people. And I, when I came back, I was busy speaking touring, going to the people who gave me money and the, the schools and the orders of religious women who contributed and uh, did, a, did a lot of speaking and writing and then also um, more actions to, to speak to these, to these terrible sanctions. For well, one thing that we did is because it was illegal to mail things like this, uh, the, the list that the post office, US post office had of things could not be mailed to Iraq and they included any materials in Braille uh, and medical textbooks and children's coloring books. And just the, 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 the list was just filmed for cameras. And so we would go to, uh, you know, and tell the press and we would go to the, to the post office and try to mail them. It would be almost comical because the people who worked and we, we'd have the media with us and, the postal workers were trying to be helpful, and their job was to help people mail things and not to stop it. But they would then have to look up because to mail something overseas, you have to fill out a customs form and everything. And they would look and say, oh, you can't mail that, and say, why not? And they would ha they'd get on the phone and call. And finally, sometimes these, these poor people working at the post office would be in tears because they couldn't understand why they couldn't mail a children's coloring book, why that was not allowed, and knowing that that, that couldn't harm anybody. But we, 
you know, we did things like that to try to try to raise awareness. And unfortunately, it's always hard to, to measure success and failure in this world. It's very difficult to measure. But as uh, Kathy Kelly, who was one of the main founders and organizers of Voices in the Wilderness, said when it's done is, is all that work in one real way, it failed because the sanctions continued until uh, after Iraq was destroyed by another by another war, 2003 and 2004, that only then were the, were, were, were the sanctions lifted. But we did what we could. And, um, you know, uh, and Ramsey was, of course, a very big, a very big part of this. He came to court for you three times to testify for you. What was his part in your trials? Twice. He was in Las Vegas and in Syracuse. He was allowed to testify. And then again, in a trial in Jefferson City, Missouri, where I was actually sentenced to six months in prison, the, the, the judge wouldn't even hear him, would not even let him on the stand. And I've seen this before with, with him and other expert witnesses, is judges and prosecutors are very intimidated by having somebody on the stand who knows the law better than they do. But sometimes they're, as I said about this, this judge who asked him who the, the, the enforcement mechanism is, they're just so intrigued that this is, most of what judges do is pretty boring, um, kind of rubber stamping deals and, and such. It was very helpful as we, the very first time anyone was arrested at a drone base for a protest, Ramsey came out, the arrest was in 2009 and, and Creech Air Force Base up, base outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. The judge was very, very dubious, allowed Ramsey to testify, and I was one of the defendants, and so was Kathy Kelly, I know you talked to, but the judge said, you have to talk only about trespass, only about trespass and trespass alone, and I'm not going to let you go anywhere else. And we were all representing ourselves, and uh, Steve Kelly was a Jesuit priest who was finally released a couple of weeks ago. He was in prison from the uh, Kings Bay Plowshares. So for uh, over three years, he was in prison. Finally was, was released for that action. Uh, but this was, he was arrested with us at, in Las Vegas. And he was cross-examining Ramsey Clark. And it was a very strange scene having a, a former attorney general on the stand being examined by a a Jesuit priest. Steve did very, very, very well in keeping this to to the issues of, of trespass because and got Ramsey to talk about going back into his early career and what trespass meant during the Jim Crow era, where trespass someone might get arrested for trespassing because they're a black person sitting at a lunch counter that's that's reserved for, for white people saying that, that the trespass laws are not saying the same, that just because there's no trespassing sign doesn't mean that a person is trespassing. I've got, I've got his, uh, the, the, the uh, transcript right here, and I'll leave, if you don't mind, I'll leave just a little bit of it. Steve Kelly says, asked uh, Ramsey, I'll give you one example, a situation where there's a no trespassing sign and there's smoke coming out of a door or a window and a person is on the upper floor in need of help enter that building in a real narrow sense would be trespass. 
Is there a possibility in the long run it wouldn't be trespassed to help the person upstairs? And Ramsey Clark said, we should hope so, wouldn't we? Have a baby burned to death or something because of a no trespass sign would be poor public policy, to put it mildly, criminal. And then he pushed it further and, you know, bringing up Nuremberg, saying that the state of mind and intention of the offense of trespassing, which is ordinarily a minor offense, is also the right to trespass to petition government. It's not only the necessity to trespass to prevent the death of a baby in a burning building, but there's sometimes under the Nuremberg Charter decisions a duty. You can be implicated in a crime yourself by failing to act. One of the illustrations people like to give is this. There's a train full of Jews on the way to extermination. You can legally block the tracks. And Steve brought it to the situation of Creech Air Force Base outside of Las Vegas. Uh, there's a where the uh, drone assassination program was going, still is going on. It has a fence and a perimeter gate. Could you hazard an opinion about trying to reach the personnel in that kind of situation? Would it be legit, legitimate? Would it be legal to try to talk to those officers or people in charge? And Ramsey said, it's not hazardous to give an opinion at all. <laughs> and says that there's such circumstances where this would be the highest a duty of the highest importance. You can show it's wrong or you can stand by and hide your face. So, you know, in that case, the judge was just flabbergasted and he said, you have to give me, you have to give me some time to think about this. And he, he did not give a, uh, give his verdict for more than three months. And this Judge Jensen, in this case, did find us guilty. And I really think he spent the time not really trying to figure out what the law actually is, but trying to do the research to find a way to find us guilty because Ramsey Clark's expert opinion, you know, sticking strictly to the issue of, of trespass, pretty much proved that we were not guilty of a crime at all. But of course, these things, as I was saying about a certain another time in history, it was illegal to bar black people from public transportation and stuff, but it still, it didn't matter. It didn't matter for a long time. And finally it did, but it took not only the change in the legislatures and in the courts, but it took, you know, it it took people, grassroots movements to, to actually make these changes. And the, the situation the world is in right now, I'm very much involved in the international drive to ban killer drones and uh, to, to get an international protocol like the prohibition against nuclear weapons that just came into force in January, but with the full realization that uh, just as with the banning of nuclear weapons, none of the nuclear states has signed on to that. So it still is, you know, the world has spoken, the United Nations has spoken, ratified this, this treaty to ban nuclear weapons, and we still have them. This is a step toward. It's not a. It's, it's not our goal. It's a, it's a tactic toward the goal of getting rid of rid of, of uh, nuclear weapons. Now getting rid of uh, remote control assassinations, remote control wars that that are uh, getting more and more destabilizing. Finally, Brian, you've talked about a man, Ramsey Clark, who spent his life fighting for the rights of people in many, many countries of the world. 
Is the one greatest achievement or is that too difficult to pick one out? Well, one thing I want to say, say about him, too, before we leave is he was also a very, uh, for all of his activism, he was a very loving family man. And I never met any of his family, but I was responsible in when he came out to testify for us in Missouri in 2012. Uh, I was responsible to helping him get his, arranged for his airline ticket and stuff. He always paid his own way, <laughs> which was really great. He was very, very generous, but I w- was helping him make these arrangements. And he, uh, his, his wife had passed on, and he had already. And he has had a daughter, Rhonda, who has some disabilities who he had to take care of. And we, when we were talking about this, he had to – it was all contingent upon him finding someone to help take care of his daughter because he was involved in the daily care of Rhonda. And but as far as the biggest thing, I think for – Everybody, or at least speaking for myself, his his biggest accomplishment was his own conversion. That he was somebody who um, loved his country and he loved the law and he loved serving the government, but he had the courage to see when it was when his country was wrong, and even see when his country was committing horrific crimes against humanity, and to be able to to move from being one of the most powerful people in the United States government to be one of the people responsible for enforcing its laws to becoming always a very loving, but a very, very harsh critic of his country's policies and coming to, from being somebody who was helping put other people and putting uh, accused criminals in jails to be very active trying to, trying to defend people who've been accused of crimes, you know, going from being a prosecutor to being a, being a, a defender of, of the accused. It takes a lot of courage to do that. It's not just courage about facing, you know, facing external consequences that, that, you know, that can be very real. When he went to Iraq, for example, he was facing 12 years in prison if they had chosen to go after him. But it's, just the, the, the courage to be able to recognize your situation and to look around you and to realize, you know, to, to realize that, that uh, the institutions that you love and that help form you are doing something bad and you have to do something about it. Uh, like you said in our trial in Nevada about whether you can cross, whether you can go beyond that perimeter and go through those gates and try to stop something from happening. And you said that you can either do that or you can just hang, stand outside the gates and hang your head. Another analogy that he used at that trial was about the child in the window. There's a, there's a, there's a burning house and somebody's in the upstairs, but there's a no trespassing sign on the door. So do you, do you go in? Do you, do you go to Iraq? Do you go to Cuba? You know, countries where our government has, has sanctions and don't allow us to go. Do you, stand outside and say, yeah, there's a no trespassing sign. I'm not going in. And then, and people are dying. So he's a person of great, great integrity, great courage. Thank you so much. It's an honor to, to be asked to, to talk about him. And, and many, many people knew him much, much better than I, but I, I, I feel uh, very, very grateful to, had him in my life as as uh, very much a, a mentor for me when I starting when I was very young. Well, thank you, Jan.
And many thanks to peace activist Brian Terrell speaking about his friend and mentor, Ramsey Clark. And stay tuned for Done By Law. And I'll be back at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.